All right. Welcome to Pastimes. Anyway, I am Alex Wood, your host, alongside Ultimate 23 Dragon. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. She's back for another episode. We've had her on once as a guest, twice as a co-host. How about you? How about you introduce today's guest? Okay, I can do that. (laughs) Today on Pastimes, our very special guest is a longtime announcer in a variety of different sports, most senior seeing in auto racing and specifically NASCAR. He has done broadcasting for NASCAR and NBC, and TNT, and ESPN, and also MRN. One of the absolute legends of the business. Today's guest is none other than Alan Bestwick. I don't know about that legends part, but uh, pleasure to meet you both, and a pleasure to spend a little time with you. Thank you for doing this. Uh, like I said, you know, you're a big part of my childhood playing, you know, NASCAR Dirt to Daytona, NASCAR Heat 2002, which I'm playing right now, and I cannot get past the Jeremy Mayfield Challenge. Uh-huh. But uh, first off, kind of, if people are not familiar with uh, NASCAR, uh, tell tell us who you are and uh, what you're about, and uh, kind of a synopsis of your career. Uh, I'm a kid from uh, Rhode Island who always wanted to be on the radio and television. Uh, played a lot of records from that group over your, your right shoulder there, pictured on the wall. The uh, Beatles. My teens when I started in radio. Um, had a dad had a race car at a local racetrack. So I was a race fan. And somewhere along the way in the mid-1980s, my, um, my, my joy, which is broadcasting, and my racing fandom collided and led to about a 30-year trip down the road through various uh, forms of auto racing and, and um, my own personal magical mystery to it. My first uh, question for you, then we'll jump into Mary's question, the 2001 Pepsi 400. What? How did that line at the end of the race just come out? Was it something you thought of, or was it something that you were just like, well, I'll plan this, or was it just like, word vomit like it just came out of your mouth and you didn't even think about it yeah i i first of all i've probably been asked about that more than anything else in my career that that singular moment so i guess it's it's fair to say in hindsight that's sort of become a uh, a defining or an iconic moment that i just happen to be witness to i'm not a believer in planning what you say i'm a believer in being prepared and studying and knowing your stuff, but you know, see, react. You know, I think it here. It comes out here. Yeah. Um, your phrase, your phrase, vomit. I might not quite use it as vomit, but I prefer to think of it as I'm I'm at, I'm at somebody else's house and they have a landline. It apparently still works. I didn't know anybody still had landlines. <laughs> the ringing point. Um, the preceding October, we were at Talladega and watching Dale Sr. in that famous race yep. where he you know, rallied through the field in, in the late laps to win. Um, I called that one from the, the MRN booth with Barney Hall. And the booths at Talladega are where the start, at, at that time, were at the start-finish line, which is offset from the trial. Yep. So your view, basically, you're looking out across the racetrack. And... It seemed like every time the black car went into turn three or four, he passed one or two people. Almost always on the bottom. There he goes. There he goes. There he goes. There he goes. Fast forward to the events at Daytona, um, and we all knew the atmosphere of the night. Um, But, you know, we get to those late laps, and there's the red car. And looking out from the booth at Daytona across turns three and four, and it seemed like every time he went to turns three and four, he passed a car on the bottom. And I had this flash in my head that said, man, looks like just like his old man. Whoa. Um, given the emotion of the night, kind of sent a little chill down my spine. When I thought it, that was just a thought. And then when he came off turn four for the finish, the... The word vomit, as you say, happened, and um, and it just came out. But yeah. the inspiration for it was having that moment, just looking there and thinking to myself, wow, look just like his old man. 
So what have you been doing since uh, not covering racing? Obviously, you did the iRacing earlier this year with Bob Jenkins, another one of Mary's uh, heroes, I guess you could say. And also, the, the term word vomit comes from the, the movie Mean Girls. That would not have been one on my view list, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, I, I would guess that would not be something you yeah. would have seen. Yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. that's just some, that's like that term that Lindsay Lohan used, and you know, I thought you know we we all say things that just like come out sometimes. You were in a movie with Lindsay Lohan. I forgot to ask Larry McReynolds that. It, what's that? Oh wait, my my connection's not the best. Uh, At the time, the NASCAR rights went away from ESPN. Um, I had some opportunities, but I, I was offered um, the chance in staying with ESPN to do some things that, um, that were dreamlike uh, for me uh, personally. I went to Wimbledon. Uh, I went to the U.S. Open. I covered the British Open at St. Andrews. I've done college football at places like uh, Texas A&M and LSU and and uh, Wisconsin and Washington State and and uh, little bits of everything. Um, so and and of course they had the Indianapolis 500, which is um, which is very close to my heart and uh, and and the opportunity to continue to do that race was was very strong. You know, a couple of years down the road, things uh, things changed. The, the rights to Indy uh, disappeared, and so on. But uh, but no regrets. Um, as I said, I've gotten to do things never would have imagined possible. Uh, I've enjoyed them. I do things now that uh, that I, I have fun with. Um, I work on uh, on the World Feed broadcast crew for the U.S. Open tennis tournament every year, which is uh, an absolute hoot. I do uh, basketball for um, a network out of New York City that covers the UConn women's team, 11-time national champions. In fact, I'm sitting here getting ready to begin our season now. Uh, you know, uh, there's, uh, there's a couple of, uh, of other projects that are on the horizon for, for this spring and this summer, uh, obviously, you know, COVID world permitting. So I, I stay busy, I have fun, um, and I enjoy life. Yeah, and uh, you were also in Herbie Fully Loaded, as I was talking about Lindsay Lohan a second ago. And, uh, I was about to bring that up when you, when you mentioned Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. When I think of Lindsay Lohan and Alan Belzer, that's the only thing I think of. Well, and I think of Benny Parsons, too. Herbie's on the fence. <laughs> Wait, Herbie's on the fence? Herbie's on the fence. But uh, yeah. what, what would... Now, before we get into Mary's uh, questions, uh, what would, can you tell us you know, a story of Benny? that you uh that that really speaks yeah. to you benny was my best friend um benny called me up we knew each other we were around each other all the time uh prior to uh nbc coming in and hiring us both but you know he was in the tv booth i was in the radio booth and and um benny called me up and said you know alan the way that this works best is if you and i become great friends and that certainly fits with my philosophy of teamwork, um, which television is. And uh, Benny and I used to play golf every Tuesday. Um, we uh, we spent a lot of time together. We would ride together on the road, share a lot of meals together. Just a genuinely great man. My, my favorite Benny story, we took a golf trip. Uh, Benny, myself, Benny's oldest son, Kevin, and... Uh, Benny's dear friend, who became my dear friend, Alden Webb. And we went to Ireland to play golf. Spent a week just traveling around Ireland playing golf. And one of the places we stayed at along the way was a castle. That had been turned into, obviously, a hotel. Yeah. And we were staying at the castle. And they have this big throne in the lobby. And I've got a picture somewhere of uh, Benny sitting in the throne at the castle. <laughs> with this big old grin on his face. And... Um, uh, just uh, memories of a lifetime made in a week that obviously in hindsight I, I treasure uh, very deeply. Yeah, just uh, watching old races and w listening to you and him and Wally, it just brings back so many memories. So uh, now it's Mary's turn to ask you her questions. Uh, go right ahead. All right, the first one is, uh, what is your 
first question I have lined up, I think we already answered, but I'll ask it again anyway in case you want to elaborate further. How did you get started calling races? Uh, I didn't get into the business to start calling races. My first jobs in broadcasting were as a disc jockey and calling high school football and basketball games um, when I was just a teenager. My dad raced at a little track called Seekonk Speedway. Just had a little uh, second division car, you know, junkyard car that, um, that they raced. And he got out of it in the early 70s when I was still pretty young uh, for money. You know, he had to make a choice between putting food on the table for his family or buying tires for his race car. Thankfully, he chose the food. Um, <laughs> I get not, that. Not, not everybody does. Thankfully, he chose the food. Um, years later, we were at the races, and I had started working in radio, and we, we were walking down the midway, and we stumbled across the promoter of the track, who was you know one of those legendary old-time promoters. His name was Anthony Vendetti. And my father introduced himself and said, you know, I'm, you know, if you remember me, my car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this, and uh, this is my son, and, and uh, he's a radio announcer. So if you ever need an announcer here, you know, give him a shot. And the guy looked at me and said, uh, you know, yeah, he asked me a couple questions. Couldn't remember what they were. But then he said, follow me. And he walked up the stairs into the tower and tapped the announcer on the shoulder. The guy's name was Jim Powers. They called him Reverend Jim because he used to give a sermon about racing on the, on the PA system and <laughs> tapped Reverend Jim on the shoulder and said, let the kid do the street stocks. That's where I started. I started doing the street stocks and then that morphed into some other things. Uh, I stopped that when I, when I went to work uh, full-time in radio and moved away, I wasn't involved in racing at all. And then um, mid 1980s got hired by MRN uh, totally off uh uh, a chance meeting and um and the rest as they say is history that's very cool uh one of the other youtubers around here he does track announcing every once in a while so i hope he hears this story and gets inspired because that's what he wants to do is get involved in broadcasting and that kind of thing are you talking about darian gilliam no i'm talking about kamikaze games oh yeah dylan jacobs yes well, so there's it too, but mainly Dylan. He's the one who's most involved in that kind of thing. Because the, the both of them are involved in that kind of thing. Darian in Las Vegas and Dylan in North Dakota. Uh, both of them are trying to get involved in that kind of thing. I think Darian's more into interviewing at the track. Uh, Dylan's more into commentating the events. And so I hope that both of them listen to this and they can get inspired by that kind of story. I'll definitely send this to, Dil to Dylan when, when, when it's out, but... Uh... Mary, you've got another question. So Yeah, recently we had uh, Larry McReynolds on the show, and he talked about how his part of the deal of being a part of the NASCAR Fox booth came to be. So my question is, how did you become the lead guy for NBC when their tenure started? Well, a lot of folks don't remember, but when NBC first got into the sport, Excuse me, I think I'm beginning to get a little washed out by the sun here. We actually have sunshine today. Um, <laughs> so do we. When NBC first got into the sport, they only had one race a year. When they first oh, opened the Homestead that. track and yep. brought cup racing there, NBC signed a contract to broadcast the Homestead race. So they needed somebody who could do racing who wasn't under contract to one of the other networks that were doing a series of races all year. Uh, I was with MRN at the time. Um, some of the people involved in management at NBC came to a race, and um, I was introduced to them. And I want to say it was a, a, a Saturday Bush Series race at Rockingham. Um, and when you're working, you know, if somebody walks into the booth behind you, you kind of know. Even if you don't hear it, you can just, you can, and I, I just, we got to some point in the race and I turned around and looked and uh, the executive producer of NBC was standing in the back of the MRN booth with one of the NASCAR broadcasting executives and he had a headset on and he was listening to the broadcast. And um, yeah, they called me up uh, a week or two later and asked me to fly to New York for an interview, and which I did. And, and they signed me to a contract to do one race a year. Um, and I would continue to do my MRN stuff and my stuff with Turner and so on. And then before we even finished the first weekend of that one race a year, 
that had morphed into NBC is going to have half the season of NASCAR for the next six years. So again, timing, luck, fortune uh, went from best available, I'll call it, to do one race a year to the network that just made me their guy has a half a season. So it was pretty, pretty good timing. I have a follow up. I have a follow up to that question. How did you become the lead guy for ESPN? <laughs> um, yeah, again, rights changed hands, and um, I had had some conversations with ESPN on and off over the years about other roles, and then um, you know it's 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 a little lost in history to some people. But when ESPN 2.0 came back into NASCAR, I wasn't the booth guy. I was a pit yeah. The first one was Jerry Punch. Right. And, um, you know, and Jerry then it became had been, Marty Reed and then you. Jerry had been with ESPN for forever and, yep. um, and uh, is a dear friend. And, uh, you know, so how I became the booth guy there was just a series of things over the years where, where you know, um, executives make decisions for, for, for one reason or, or another. They all have their, their own personal, you know. Uh, responsibilities and assignments and preferences and so on, but it it, it morphed around to that way. And uh, you know, I've been on both ends of that side. I went from the booth guy to pit road at NBC. I went from pit road to the booth guy at ESPN. Uh, you know, it's broadcasting. Um, it's a personal preference medium, and um, uh, I have no complaints about any of it. I've uh, I've been treated well by by everyone I've ever worked for, and um, uh, all good people that I've worked for again. Okay, so earlier we referenced your most famous and most memorable call in the 2001 Pepsi 400. And when you were on another YouTube broadcast known as the NASCAR Weekly Podcast, you brought that up. So I'm going to change it up a bit. What is your second favorite call of all time, if you have one? Oh, boy. Uh, you know, the thing, the, the great flaw of my character um, that also helps me stay hungry is I'm not a backwards looking person. So when a race finishes, I enjoy it for about 10 seconds and I start thinking about the next one or when a, when a game finishes or when a broadcast finishes, I instantly make my, my mental notes about what I could have done better or what I want to work on to be better next time. And I move on. So of all of the hundreds of races, it's probably in the thousands, but I've never stopped to count that I've done. It's really hard for me to pull specific ones out of the memory bank because I don't, I don't, what, what I did yesterday is irrelevant now. It's what I'm going to do tomorrow that matters more in my way of going about the business. So, I mean, there's been, look, there's been, tons of them you can you can uh, you, you you could make a list a mile long and i'd stop and if i really if i really took the time to stop and think about it and come back around again i'd say oh, oh, oh wait left, left one out but which one do i take out you know if you ask me to make a list of the 10 favorite races of somebody asked me once make a list of your 10 favorite races of all time i said how <laughs> you know yeah how so I'd, I'd be lying if I told you that things jumped out at me like that. Um, but there, there have been so many, uh, so many over the years um, that it's, um, it's a little overwhelming to stop and think about sometimes all the great moments that I've had the, you know, the privilege to, uh, to be part of. Well, the top 10 countdown is one of my things that I do on YouTube. And I did this with two different announcers already and Marty Reed and Bill Weber. So when you essentially do decide to retire, I might have to do that for you. So you don't have to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really not good with, uh, looking backwards. Um, because I just I, I, I always just move on quickly to the next show to get ready for the next show. So, I mean, I, I could I could tell you about conversations I've had with people uh, about different. Like I saw 
some highlights not that long ago of Ricky Craven's win at Martinsville. And I remember a conversation I had with Ricky about that, um, that specific race and my call of it and what it meant to him afterwards to go back and watch. Um, and so that one, you know, when I, when I saw the, the clip, I was like, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. you know, Tony Stewart winning at Indianapolis. It's pretty cool. Uh, I could, I, you know, Homestead. Um, uh, I always love Homestead being the last race of the year. And we had some great races at Homestead to finish the season. Remember that crazy one the first year they had the chase? Yep. And Kurt Busch almost hits the hits the wall when the tire comes off and then comes down to the last laps and they're all there in a big pile racing for the championship. And um, man, what a day. Matt Kenseth's first win was in the 600 at Charlotte. Yep. And that was on Turner and that was me. And I just think back to, you know, what a great night. How fun that was. Uh, guys getting their first win, um, you know, bunches of them. So there are just, there are so many. And, um, and I've been so fortunate to be part of so many great moments in sport that, uh, that the list would be, would be too long for me to even begin making sense of. You were uh, in the booth when I went to my first race at Chicagoland in 2011 when Stewart won his first of five races. And being, a, I think I was eight years old. You're not going to ask me if I remember details about that race, are you? Nope. No. I remember the details of that race. I remember, this is what I remember. The, the one time I went to that track, and I, we haven't gone since, and we're probably never going to go again. But every other race I've been to, there were collisions with other cars. That race... No collisions, just collisions with the wall. I remember Marcus Ambrose brushed the wall. And I remember Jeff Gordon running out of gas in four. I was like, God, you know what? But uh, I've been watching a lot of inside Winston Cup racing, and I know Mary's got a question about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what are your favorite memories about that show when you did the show with Michael Waltrip, Johnny Benson, and Kenny Schrader, and sometimes Kenny Wallace? My my favorite parts about that show was the, 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 the creativity, the creative freedom we were given by the people who formed Speed Vision. Remember, that show came on when Speed Vision first was formed. And literally, the gentleman that, that ran the network was a former ESPN executive, and he approached me and he said, we're going to do this show every Monday after the race, and we're going to have three drivers that were in the race the day before. One Chevy, one Ford, one Pontiac, because those were the three makes that were in the in the um, series at the time. And he said, um, "We're going to do the show every Monday." And um, are you are you interested? Yeah, I'd love to. Sounds like fun. And that was about as much guidance as we were given by the executives. That's it. And the rest of it, we made up. So we worked with an, an excellent small, hard-working group of people um, in a small studio in Charlotte that had no bells and whistles, but had enough to get us on the air and do what we did. Um, if we had an idea, we went for it. Uh, I remember one day we did a show. We would always do this little opening to, to the show, and then they'd go to this, you know, pre-produced animation that leads a show. And I remember we just did, we, Ernie Irvin was sitting there talking to us and he was sitting on like the back wall of the set that was behind us. And the producer's kind of like, Hey, clock's ticking, bud. We kind of need to get this going. I said to Ernie, stay there. We're going to do the opening of the show. So he just sat there on the counter, just like this. <laughs> Hearing it, you know, right between probably Johnny and Kenny in the shot. And we just did our open. Like we, like he wasn't even there. We just ignored him. Just did it went to commercial and then we had him leave so then when we came back nobody he wasn't there and when he came on we didn't even acknowledge it you know and silly things like that you know one day one day they talked to empty the trash in the middle of the show uh, the dumpster yeah. was right outside the wall of the studio so it became a thing um michael's dad leroy um god rest his soul but 
he would come with Michael every now and then. And one time he fell asleep in the chair in the studio <laughs> while we were doing the show. So we got to a commercial and Michael said to him, Dad, you fell asleep. And, and Leroy, showing the wit that lets you understand where Daryl and Michael got it from, shook awake and he looked and said, well, that's because you guys are so damn boring. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the spirit and the attitude with which we did the show. And, yeah. um, you know, it resonated with people. It was uh, had, a, had a nice nine-year run with it. Um, you know, business changes, things change. You know, the network changed hands, new owners, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but we had a great run. We had a lot of fun. And, um, and I still get asked about that show regularly today, which tells me that, that – that creativity and spontaneity, and most of all, the spirit with which we took the show, which was, you can't have fun watching if we're not having fun doing. Yeah. Uh, and so, by gosh, no matter what, we're going to have fun doing this show. We didn't care who we made fun of. We didn't care, you know, and mostly we made fun of ourselves. But um, but it resonated with people, and they enjoyed it. And uh, and, and it was, uh, again, another great chapter in, uh, in a big book. Yeah, that's uh going back. You know, I've I've listened to you know Kenny Wallace, Ken Schrader, and um, uh, Michael Waltrip. Johnny Benson really didn't have much to say, really. But every time he did say something, it was quite smart. But um, uh, Mary, do you have any other questions? Johnny was our, Johnny was our smart guy. Yeah, he... Johnny was the guy who, who, um, who when you when you needed a real answer to something, um, he would he would bring the information but he had you know johnny had a great sense of humor oh, yeah. make fun of himself and everybody else too and and um, you know just uh a good soul who was um it was a lot of fun to work with yeah uh my question to you is um yeah yeah um what advice do you have to someone who wants to get involved in journalism like myself especially racing journalism sure um didn't hear the last part of your question because because your mic uh, oh, wasn't there. But like, um, wants to know how, what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into uh, journalism, motorsports journalism? Well, you know, the media business is changing rapidly. Um, you know, at the time I started in NASCAR, there were beat writers from like thirty newspapers that traveled to every race every week and were in the press box and you know uh, uh when a local tv station sent out a crew uh to the racetrack you know there was a cameraman a reporter maybe a producer uh maybe a lighting and sound person depending on what they were doing um now um everything is uh is cut back slimmed down trimmed out so my first word of advice would be be versatile now if you're going to be a reporter for a local tv station you are going to set up the equipment shoot the piece yourself and probably edit it yourself um i only learned how to edit videotape about six months ago <laughs> just because i was working on a project that i wanted to handle myself um so i took a class in final cut pro but I've never edited anything in my life that's been on television. Uh, that's not the way the business is anymore. So first thing is be versatile. Learn everything you can learn. Practice your writing. Practice your speaking. Practice your editing. Practice everything. I mean, I'm sitting here. If I tip my glasses up enough, you can see I've got some lighting here. You know, you have to learn about the importance of all that stuff and how it fits into what you're doing. Uh, second thing is... It's a people business. Um, nothing happens without you knowing people. So doing things like reaching out to people, um, making contacts, staying in touch with those contacts, um, incredibly valuable. Your network is a lot. Uh, third thing is, be someone people want to work with. Nope. 
a, a boss can hire a thousand people. Why does he want to hire someone if he or she creates problems? Solve problems for your boss. Don't create them. And then, and the last part is when someone says, can you, the only acceptable answer is yes. So, you know, there, there are, there are opportunities that I've had in my life where I, I passed by people who might've been ahead of me in the seniority line in certain areas because they said no. And I said, yes, can you go work this game on Christmas day? Yes. Can you, uh, I know you're supposed to have this weekend off, but we need somebody to go to. Yes. Um, Hey, we need to carry this box of equipment up those 105 steps to the broadcast booth at the racetrack where we don't have an elevator. And there's only two of us here and you're one of them. Can you help? Yes. I will help you get all this stuff up to the booth so it can be set up so I can talk. <laughs> you know, so um, be willing. Be pleasant and work at your craft. Those are the things you have to do. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree. So something that's actually, I don't know if it's showing right here, but it says remain meeting time on my screen. Do you want me to pause the recording and then uh, we can all hop in another meeting to continue the interview? My Alex, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, the 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 remaining time on the meeting is like four minutes and 30 seconds. Do you want me to uh, pause the recording and then uh, we can all jump in another meeting? Because I know you've got another question. Alan, is that okay with you? Yeah, I don't even know what time it is, but whatever you need. All right, so I'm going to end this um, meeting. Just enter in the same information that, uh, I, that I sent the both of you, and uh, I'll pause the recording, and then uh, we can continue the interview. Okay. okay. All right. All right, so what I'm going to do is uh, they're going to be back, and uh, I'm going to pause right here, and then we'll uh, jump right back into it. All right, everyone's okay. back, and uh, Mary, you've got a question, so go ahead. <laughs> okay. So earlier we were referencing the uh, changes going on. There was one that I did want to know about that was pretty curious to me. In 2004, there was an infamous incident in a hockey game where you injured your leg and Bill Weber substituted for you. And after 2004, Bill Weber became the lead guy. So was the leg injury influenced by that or was it a swap of some sort by NBC for a different reason? You know, uh, I haven't dwelt on that much over the years. Um, my my opinion to NBC, my position was always the same. Whatever you think will make the best broadcast for the fans, that's what it's all about. And um, you know, they they uh, they moved a few pieces around the chessboard. I was still uh, um, very valued and and uh, uh, well treated part of the team. And uh, like I said, if they, if, if, you know, my, my attitude then and, and my attitude today are, aren't any different, whatever is best for the fans. Cause that's who we do these things for. So, um, you know, was, uh, was the broken leg tied to, I don't know, broken leg was tied to clumsiness more than anything. Um, but, um, you know, the, these are the bumps in the road you're going to have. If you're going to be in this business, we were talking about, um, you know, wanting to be in the business. Look, you're going to be in this business. You will get fired. Not, not, a, not a matter of if you yeah. will get fired. It's a matter of when and how you handle it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's a thousand, there's no simple answer to your question. You know, there's a thousand things that can go into anything like that. And I've never chosen to dwell on it or probe the depths of it. I said, whatever, whatever, you, whatever you think's best for the team. Uh, still, my answer today. That's an interesting 
interesting way to look at it because uh, based on the fan base, I think they would rather have, no disrespect to Bill Weber, but they rather would have you in the booth than Bill Weber. That's the fan perspective that I see. Well, you know, again, we're talking, you know, 2004, 16 years ago. Um, yeah. I, uh, I have great friends at NBC, the people that run NBC, the people that, that make those kinds of decisions. They're all good friends. And uh, to this day, and, um, you know, there, there's, there's no animosity. There wasn't at that time. There, there isn't now. Uh, if, if somebody called me up today, or, you know, back in 2000, and said, you know, we want to hire you to be a pit reporter for NASCAR and NBC. Um, would I have taken the job? You betcha I would have, even though I was the booth guy at MRN. So, you know, whatever role I'm in, um, I want to be a good teammate. I do that role to the best of my abilities. I want to bring something to the show. And, uh, and you know, uh, felt like I did that quite capably um, back then and uh, continue to, to work at doing that now. That's a very good way to look at it. I hope, I hope the fans that are involved in the commentary wars take that to heart because they can be rampant in terms of these lead announcer wars and everything. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Speaking of lead announcers, <laughs> me, of lead announcers you had a, go on, sir. I was just say, let me, let me tell you a little bit about that. Okay. Um, I very much respect fans' ability to have an opinion. They are the consumers. That's who you're there to please. I do get a little bit um, disappointed that people who haven't done the job feel like they might know how to do the job better than you. There's a lot going on in a live telecast. Oh, yeah. Uh, a, a lot going on. And the reason people have those jobs is because they've demonstrated over time they're the best at it. I don't care whether it's the producer, the director, the camera operators, the replay operators, they've demonstrated over time they're damn good at it and better than most. And I have the utmost respect for that. It's why you'll never see me on social media being critical of someone else's broadcast because I know there's a thousand things going on all in one second. You have When you're doing a live telecast, you have a hundred decisions to make every second of that telecast. Um, it's hard. If it was easy, it wouldn't be so hard to get those jobs. So, you know, it's, it's, it'd be, it'd be like, it'd be like me jumping on and being critical of the guy flying the F-16 going by. Heck, I don't know what it's like to fly an F-16. So I'm not going to yeah. criticize him. You know, I, yeah. I just, I, I, I get a little disappointed at, at, at people on social media sometimes because there does have to be some understanding that, you know, it takes some skill to do that job. And there are usually reasons why things are done the way they're done. Now, do people make mistakes? Sure they do. I, I could make you probably a list of my top 10 greatest mistakes far easier than my top 10 favorite races. Right? <laughs> Just yeah, because that's how we are. We always want to get it perfect and nobody's ever been perfect. But, so I get I get a little disappointed at that stuff sometimes, and and um, it, it's uh, it's a shame that it's it's the way that it is. But that's the world we live in. Uh, the world seems to be criticized first and consider later. And I'm kind of the opposite way. I give consideration first and then criticize if appropriate. Yeah, uh, you know I think you know us as YouTubers we're all like that. You know, you know I've gotten some hate comments on my videos. Mary, obviously, I know you have gotten some and, you know, and this is a community. And, um, also my, my question to you, I forgot to ask Larry McReynolds this about Talladega Nights, but, uh, I can make up for it and ask you about this, about Herbie fully loaded. 
How did that come about with you and Benny being in that movie? First off, it's a really good movie. Um, honestly, I don't know much of how it came about. I got a phone call from somebody at NASCAR saying they were working with the producers of this movie, and you know they be did did uh they were going to hire me and Benny to be in it. Great. What do you want me to do? We want you to play yourself. Oh, okay. I can handle that. Um, we did the scenes where we're in a booth. We're actually at Auto Club Speedway, California. Yeah. They you know, brought a crew out from Los Angeles, and we finished the Saturday afternoon, then Bush Series race, um, and walked about three booths down from the broadcast booth where they had set up their version of a broadcast booth. And we sat there and we, you know, made up some things in the camera that they, they, they wanted to catch shots of. The rest of it was done at a VO, in a VO booth in Charlotte. Um, they want all of the, all of the lines, the racing scenes where, you know, for the most part, it's just my voice in the background or, yeah. um, they, uh, they were in Los Angeles in a studio and I was in Charlotte in a studio and we were connected um, and I said, look, just show me the pictures and I'll make something up. And so the whole Herbie's on the fence bit and all that, they played the video and I called it. And that's how that came to be. Now, the funny part about the whole thing, um, my sons were teenagers at the time when that movie came out. And we said one night, Hey, we're going to the movies. Um, and we showed up and had my uh, uh, my family. I, I think my sisters were, were, were with me and maybe my mom and dad. And uh, my two sons were there. And they looked and they said, well, we're going to see Herbie. <laughs> and so literally we got into the movie theater and neither one of them sat with me. Like one sat like 10 rows in front of us and the other sat like we were up the top of the theater. They sat, he sat all the way down the bottom. And they didn't know I was in this movie. Like I hadn't told them. <laughs> So you're about halfway into the movie when I act, when we first come on camera. I remember because I knew what was coming, and I'm sitting there watching my two sons, and and there the old man comes up on the movie screen, and the one right in front of me's head snaps around so fast I think his glasses flew off. <laughs> and the younger one that was sitting down lower had been sitting like slumped down in his seat with his feet up over the seat in front of him like he didn't want anybody to know he was there. And all of a sudden he sits up and the feet come down off the seat and he turns around and he looks back and he, he goes, <laughs> they had no idea. So, uh, turned out really well. It was a fun project to work on. And, um, uh, I, somebody told me that it was on just the other night again. So they're, they're still showing it and getting good use out of it, which is great. Yeah. Uh, Next time I talk to Larry, I'll have to talk to him about Talladega Nights because I like Talladega Nights too. That's a fun movie. Herbie's a fun movie too. Uh, my NASCAR Thunder 2004, uh, 2003, 2004, 2005 cars are all based on Trip Murphy number 82, the Cheetos car, which is honestly one of my favorite movie paint schemes out of any racing movie I've ever seen. So um, we were talking about inside uh, Winston Cup racing, and Mary's a Johnny Benson fan, and I'm from West Michigan. Can you tell us a memory that you have, a specific memory you have of Johnny Benson from that show, and maybe a story to go along with it? Yeah. Um, probably one that stood out to me. Johnny had a crash at Daytona. Um, he was racing for Nick Beverly in the tank car that he was contending to win and got swept into a crash on the backstretch and slapped the wall with the side of the car really hard. He broke some ribs. And I remember talking to him. So that was a, the race was on Saturday. Was that the 400 or the 500? I can't remember which it was. Mary knows a lot about Johnny. Race, race was on a Saturday. So we're going to do a show on a Monday. And I remember talking to him on Sunday saying, you know, um, Want me to get somebody to sit in for you? He said, no, I'll be there. And um, so Johnny walked into the studio and sat down in the chair to do this TV show. Well, if you've ever had broken ribs, you know how painful they are to do anything, to breathe, let alone to turn back and forth and talk to people yeah. on a TV set. And, and of course, um, 
us being who we are and cutting up and laughing on the show, laughing hurts when you have broken ribs. But um, I, my conversation with John about him saying, no, I'll, I'll be there and showing up and doing the show and, and um, bringing to the audience firsthand that he was okay, that he was hurting, but, you know, um, pretty classy. And, um, and that's, uh, that's a word I would use to describe John is, uh, is pretty classy. Yeah, he's a legend around here. Even though I'm an hour and a half. So. Yeah, I'm an hour and a half south. Uh, St. Joseph is uh, the south. One of the it's in Berrien County, which is the southwesternmost um, county in in Michigan. But you called a Western versus uh, MSU game. Did, Michigan State. My dad and I watched that game. My dad was like, "Is that Alan Bestwick?" I'm like, and I hear I'm like, "What's he doing calling football?" Yeah, that was a season opener in 2015. Yep. Uh, PJ Fleck was the uh, the Western coach, and and um, I hit up I hit up Coach Fleck on Twitter every now and then. And uh, but we 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 were the uh, the early indoctrination into the whole row the boat um, and 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 background behind it. PJ's a terrific guy, a great coach, and um, uh, really really genuinely. Nice man. Yeah, um, I'm a big U of M fan. Our local football player, his name is Rob Fredrickson. He went to the University of, or to Michigan State. His dad was my dad's woodshop teacher at St. Joseph High School, and okay. my great grandparents were his neighbors growing up. And him and his brother broke their window playing, uh, I think, baseball. And um, there are a lot of good stories about him and. Uh, also, Matt Manti, I don't know if you've heard that name. He, his um, his son goes to my school, and I'm personal friends with him and his son. So, okay. hopefully, we'll get nice. we'll get Rob and uh, and uh, Matt on the show sometime, and maybe Jason Babin too. I've had some conversation with him, former uh, NFL defensive end. I think what position did he play? I can't remember, but uh, that name's probably familiar to you. He's from Pawpaw, Michigan, so yeah. you're probably learning a lot about West Michigan today. Well, uh, I've spent uh, a bit of time there in my life uh, yep. for various things. So, uh, you know, there's uh, one of the biggest junior tennis tournaments in the world happens in Kalamazoo every year. Yep. So, Dave Burns is from Kalamazoo. Yes, he is. Do you have a specific – on that topic, can you tell us a Dave Burns story maybe? A Dave Burns story. Um, first race at Chicagoland. We were we we sent Dave out to do something. Oh, I know uh, Joey Chitwood. Right, he was going to Joe, Joey Chitwood was the general manager of the Chicago Land Speedway, and of course the Chitwood family and their thrill shows. Joey grew up, you know, uh, driving in those things, and we sent Dave out to ride in the pace car with Joey while he did all the various um, flying one eighties and that kind of thing. And um, uh, Dave is just a genuinely good human being yes he is and, uh, uh, a great friend and uh, he and Shannon and Roxana I just um, I enjoy we don't get to spend as much time as uh, as we used to uh, together anymore uh, especially since I don't live in Charlotte anymore but uh, good human being and a dear friend yeah he uh, he, he brings so much entertainment especially that uh, uh, qualifying for the 03 Chevy Rock and Roll 400 he uh, got up on that stage and he said you know what I could probably sing one thing. Give me fuel. Give me fire. Give me that, which I desire. And then there is that one time when him and Marty were at Bristol and they got up on that, on the banks and they were bowling. And then they're like, a perfect 10. And uh, the reason I rewatched that race, uh, because I recently got Johnny Benson's um, employee design car, the die cast of it. And that was running that race. Yeah, Mary, that's where that car was run. If Mary and I were talking about that uh, a few yeah. weeks ago, and um, so you know, it's you know, I I remember NBC more than I really did Fox. I mean, Fox was oh Mary uh, cut out, I think. But no, uh, it, it kicked me out for no reason. I'm back. Okay, um, so there are you know there are a lot of memories. You know, for me, you know. The first time I ever heard of you, I still remember this. I was five years old. It's 2007. I was living in my old house. 
this guy from my church gave me a bunch of VHS tapes. One of them was the 1996 year in review. It was you and Benny talking at the Hendrick Motorsports Museum outside of Charlotte. I still remember uh, watching that, and uh, that's the first time I ever heard of you. And then that's when I started to really take NASCAR seriously. But uh, and also, I don't know if I told you this. I I'm a journalist. I'm I wrote an article about former sim racer Jason Jacoby, who has done some questionable things in in the past few months. And uh, I don't want to jump too much into that. But uh, Mary, could you give Alan a synopsis of like what's been going on with Jason? <laughs> Okay, so basically, he's a former iRacer. He has connections with Dale Earnhardt Jr. in a league that he used to do in the past. But the more he, basically, the more he kept being a part of the community, the more stranger things started happening involving him. And it basically devolved into a bunch of different issues involving a relationship he was in, and also his health. Yeah, and uh, and that's why I've seen quite a few times like these people who do i racing. Some of them did think that just because he said you know you can get a ride, they thought you know they could get a ride too, and that's not how it works. But uh, but uh, my question for you, since we were talking about Dirt Today, Tona, how did like what are, how did that come about? Like how did you get involved with doing stuff with uh, infograms? You know, most most of those kind of projects, I would say, came through NASCAR. Um, somebody, you know, would obviously be in discussions with NASCAR about um, doing those games, and and um, you know, they'd be they'd be looking for voices or, or people affiliated with the sport to give it authenticity, and and uh, so the phone would ring, and and uh, I'd end up at a voiceover studio somewhere recording lines. Um, and, uh, and, and sooner or later, um, I get to see the finished product. Uh, I still have, I just found, I moved not that long ago, and uh, I found an original unopened copy of the original NASCAR Heat. And that was kind of a, a, a fun find in my little uh, nostalgia closet because I haven't seen that in I don't know how many years. But, uh, but though, you know, those, the, those things just happen. Just being around yeah. the sport and... Um, and you know, the, the, there are a lot of crazy ones over the years that just sort of fell in my lap, but that's that's all part of it. It's all part of fun. Yeah, NASCAR Heat's pretty fun. I can't get past that Ward Burton challenge, though, when you have to bl- – when uh, I think you're right, the right tires blow. I'm like, okay, how how – it's at Darlington, too. So, <laughs> okay. But uh, I know you're probably not, not a gamer. What's that? I said that that's probably not going to be good. Yeah, I can't yeah. – it's Darlington. That surface eats up your tires. It's not like Chicagoland or Talladega. It's something I've learned about fuel strategy and uh, pitting on at Talladega on Thunder 2003, don't take tires. You don't really need tires after one, if you're going to pit once, don't t- that's a fuel only stop. But um, you know, we'd like to now open the floor for you to ask us a question maybe you have if you have any. Favorite driver well, for me, like favorite driver of all time, favorite driver across all three series right now, or uh, I've got quite a few. Uh, so I'll have Mary go first because I've got quite a few. Yeah, basically in terms of me, there's one of three different ways you can go. If you ask me my favorite Cup Series driver right now, it's Brad Keselowski. If you ask me my current favorite driver, period, it's Johnny Sauter. If you ask me my favorite driver of all time, it's Johnny Benson. Yeah, so yeah, my favorite driver uh, all time in the Cup Series, Jeff Gordon. My favorite driver all time in the Xfinity Series, Harrison Burton. My favorite driver of all time in the Truck Series, Johnny Benson. Right now in the Cup Series, Chase Elliott. Right now in the Xfinity Series, Harrison Burton. And right now in the Truck Series, my friend Carson Hosevar. Not trying to sound biased or anything. He he's from Portage, which is an hour away, but. Uh, yeah, um, we. If you have any other questions, feel free to ask them. The one place you want to go that you have yet to be able to go to R- see a race. Homestead. Wow, that's a good question because I've only been to one racetrack ever in my life, and that was Richmond. 
I would really love to see an Indy 500 live. Yeah. I'd really love to do that. Good choice. A race that really sticks out in my head is the 2013 Pure Michigan 400 because my high school's band played the national anthem that day. And I was in, I was in band uh, my freshman, sophomore, junior year of high school. And I was in, and that's actually when I started to get in band, I played the saxophone and uh, I talked to my band director about that. She said, yeah, that was a pretty fun experience. Our band nurse said, I am never going back to another NASCAR race as long as I live. And, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty hot day that day. My aunt Joyce was like, she was cussing. She was like, it is so hot. Randy, why did you bring us here? And, um, the story of how my family got into racing is a story in and of itself. But um, it are you gonna are you gonna tell it or are you just gonna leave it there? Would you like to hear it? I'll tell it if you'd like to hear it. Now just remember, any good story has got to be like thirty seconds or less. Oh, basically, uh, how it happened was my grandpa uh, was gambling with some people in Charlotte, and, and they're like, "You must be a Gordon fan." Well, my mom's cousin, his nephew, my uncle Randy is his dad and uh, my grandpa's brother. So uh, he went to Darlington in 97, the Gordon versus Burton show. And um, that's how they and they got big into it. And then my then um, Jason, my mom's cousin, showed my uncle Randy. He took him to a race at Michigan. And then my dad went to Indian 01 a race won by Jeff Gordon, which I've got a bunch of Jeff Gordon stuff. It's all in the other room because there's so much of it. And Johnny Benson finished third in that race, Mary. And I have the diecast of the car he drove that day. Alan, you commentated that race. No. Uh, oh, yeah, I did. Two, 2001. I was thinking of the first Brickyard. That was 94. Yeah, he... uh, yes, we did. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a great day. I love Indianapolis. I've, uh, um, I've had a, a great love for the place since I was a kid. And... Um, to get to call that race, uh, to get to, to jump in there on the brickyards, and then to eventually get to call the Indianapolis 500, that's uh, it's it's a great thing. It's um, it's a magical place, and uh, oh yeah, uh, and and it's it's even more special uh, on race day. Yeah, the the one Indianapolis 500 that sticks out, and it's very close to me, is uh, 2011. Dan Weldon winning. And that's close to me because Dan passed away on my ninth birthday. And I remember watching the crash. And I remember Marty Reed saying it looked like Dan Weldon may have gotten a piece of it. We were at Texas Corral in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which is the sister city of St. Joe. I was living in Stevensville. I live in St. Joe right now. But um, so I went, uh, we were at Texas Corral. They had the thing playing on the loudspeaker. I come home and Ryan Barnhart. No, Randy Bernard, I think. Was it Randy Bernard or Ryan Barnhart? I can't remember. It was Randy Bernard. Okay, it was Randy Bernard. He said, um, it'll take place in ten, in 10 minutes. I'm like, okay. Then uh, Marty said something about Paul Dana. I was like, oh no. And then um, I remember I was in disbelief. And it was just one of those days that um, some guy said, you know, that was like, I don't want to compare it to 9-11, but it's like one of those days where you were, like, you were there and you remember it. Speaking of 9-11, what was that first race at Dover like? Um, it depends. The race itself or surrounding the race. Because the race itself was energizing. Um some sense of normalcy at a time when we didn't really have any normalcy. The surroundings, you know, getting to the race, um, everything that went around it were very different. Um, you know, I took a train there because the airports and, and flying and so on was still quite um, unsettled. Yeah. Uh, I took a train to the race and home and, um, you know, there were some different things and protocols in place at the racetrack that weekend, if I recall. But the race itself was was uh, was energizing. It was fun. It was, uh, uh, if 
I if I if I recall it correctly, it was a good competitive race and uh, had a popular winner and and just the fact that you know we were all able to gather there with so many people um, and do something we all enjoyed and and um, celebrate freedom, if you will, was uh, was was kind of kind of a, a little boost of energy we all needed. Yeah. Uh, the pre-race is actually really touching for me because of how many of my family members uh, have served this country, even though I was actually adopted when I was eight months old and from Moscow. So you're probably, I'm a, I'm 18 now. I am an 18 year old Russian who loves NASCAR, who grew up in Michigan. So, but uh, I, I consider myself American. I voted in the election. Um and the president and Pre- President Donald Trump was at the Daytona 500 this year. Can you tell us a little bit about when you commentated the 2004 Daytona 500 with President George W. Bush? Yeah, it's it's um, that was the second time, um, the second time that we had a President Bush at the racetrack at Daytona. Yep, uh, we had. Uh, uh, George H.W. Bush at the 92 Firecracker 400. Um, I have a picture on the wall of my office. I'm not at my house right now, but I have a picture on the wall of my office at that interview. And then uh, George W. Bush was at the Firecracker race when he was candidate George W. Bush. 2000? And had a chance to meet him, yep. And um, four years later, came back as president of the United States you know, when, when, when the president's in the house, uh, the secret service wins the show. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, a normal routine on race morning would be, you know, you get to the track, um, you, you maybe spend a little time in the TV compound with, with the crew. Then you go down into the garage, talk to crew members, talk to crew chiefs, wander around, you know, maybe go to the driver's meeting. Then you head up to the booth. And, um, and you get ready to go that morning. They told us when we got to the racetrack, we were to go right up to the booth because they were going to take control of the elevators at something like nine o'clock in the morning or, and if we weren't up, no, I lost connection again. Mr. Bush was, um, was just a genuinely nice man who was a sports fan, who was interested to be there, who was happy to be there, and um, and was uh, was uh, was great to get the chance to talk to. Yeah, I didn't get you when uh, my internet connection went out when uh, you were talking about the elevators. So what did you say after the elevators? And then I got you back when you said he was a nice man. They, they shut him off. And if you're not upstairs by a certain time, you're not getting there. Yeah, Tim Pakman told me about that day and about um, this year with Trump. But you know, uh, with you know all the stuff going on, you know, surrounding you know election and you know how many people, you know, kind of like how you know back and forth that is. He's probably that's a touchy subject, really. And you know, but uh, every time the president's there, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And um, and uh, I. I you know, the way that, you know, you know, I'm not a I'm not a Bush guy, I'm not a Trump guy, but the way that they were with the drivers and the way that they the way that th- when President Trump was very open with the drivers, I really enjoyed seeing that. I really enjoyed seeing George W. Bush shaking hands with, you know, Jimmy Johnson, Tony Stewart, Greg Biffle, you know, guys like them, you know. And that was around the time when I was getting into it. And that was also the first points race under the Nextel Cup banner. And, uh, you know, Mary knows a lot about NASCAR from the early 2000s and stuff, but uh, as well as I do. But, uh, yeah, we'd like to open the floor for you again to ask us any questions you may have. Good to go. Um, time is short. Next appointment calls. And, um, um, you know, the, the day never stops. The calendar marches. Yep. <laughs> Well, once again, uh, thank you to Alan Bastwick for doing this. And, um, yeah, uh, this has truly been an honor to, to hear, to hear stories from what another one of my childhood heroes. I, I'm, 
you know, this is this podcast has done a lot for me, and uh, th- this it's an honor to be connected to with you through LinkedIn, and you're also my friend on Facebook as well. So, um, be well, be healthy, um, work at your craft. Best of luck as you as you as you wander through it, and um, February's not that far away. Oh, I'm excited for next year. Thank you once again. Great pleasure. Thank you. Take care. You too. You too. That was Alan Bestwick and Ultimate 23 Dragon.